This, this is a Mila production. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to everybody listening today. Thank you guys for listening to another installment of the Boredom Project podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Smythe McCauley, and today we have the Renaissance woman herself to talk to us about reproductive justice, um, what that means, and what she's been doing in that field to, uh, to, to create some change. And so today on the show, we have Emma Morgan Bennett, the recent Swarthmore College graduate, blessing us with her presence. How are you doing, Emma? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here all the way from New York right now. The, the center of the pandemic, living it up. It's amazing. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, you are a New Yorker. Uh, you were born there, right? New York yeah, City? Yeah, born and raised in New York. I lived in Spain for half a year with my family, but that's, that's literally the only time I've been away from New York City. Wow. Oh, and for college, of course, also. Yeah. Yeah. Pennsylvania. <laughs> Very different from New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're a New Yorker. I'm a wannabe New Yorker. I moved there two years ago, technically, for college. Um, so I guess the first thing would be, uh, could you give us kind of a New York for dummies, how to survive in the city, dummies being me and, and like every other Southerner who's never experienced a winter? You know, I, I love that question um, because I actually think I'm really most appreciative for my non-New Yorker friends when they come to the city and I'm able to see, like, how real human beings interact with each other instead of just, like, walking past one another without eye contact. <laughs> um, I will say, having walked down the street with you, you are actually the slowest walker I've ever, ever, ever seen. Um, so I would, you know, recommend a little bit of calf workouts for you personally to try to get you moving a little faster. Um, I also think that for me, the best part of New York is when you put down your phone and you just like actually see what's going on in the city. Because I think that, um, like yesterday I was biking down, um, Riverside drive and I ended up going like through the park basically. So it's through rivers, um, Riverside park. And, you know, I couldn't bike and text and everything. And I was just like seeing so much life. And even in this crazy, horrible pandemic, um, that has ripped apart our city. You also see like New York tough is, tough like no other city um and you're just seeing these groups of people like I saw um a baby gender reveal um up in Washington Heights and you saw these like this beautiful group of like young brown and black people um celebrating their pregnancy um with a gender reveal I saw some a tango class I saw some people kayaking on the river I saw people swimming in the Hudson River which I was like mm, uh. I want to celebrate like that much <laughs> but uh, you do you. <laughs> and it's just like, that. that is New York for me. You know, it's just like all types of wild randomness coming together at the perfect moment so that I can be biking down the river at the time of sunset and see we're still full of life and energy. Um, so put your phones down and keep your head up so you can see how incredible the space is. Yeah, I'll try to do that next time I'm checking my grades while walking to class, <laughs> put my phone down and, and see, you know, smell the roses. Um, but what's one thing in New York, I know it's like a very, New York City especially is a really big tourist city, but mm-hmm. what's one thing that a New Yorker would know to go to or a place they would go to that most tourists wouldn't 
think about? Ooh, that's a good question. <sighs> okay. Well, okay, like I don't want to double use it, but I do think that everyone goes to Central Park as opposed to Riverside Park. Um, but Riverside Park is actually like beautiful and more calm and it just has like a flow to it. Um, I would say the High Line, but that is actually like very touristy. Um, and then, ooh, I don't, I don't know, Josh, that's a really good question. Eh, yeah, those are it. Like, I guess, oh, and then also, this is what it is. Okay, I would go to the Trapeze <laughs> School of New York City. Have you ever gone there? No, I've yeah. never heard of it. So it's like right, it's right below um, Chelsea Piers, and it's where I had my birthday parties when I was a little kid. Um, and so it's right on the Hudson River, and you're just like flying high, like, on the trapeze bars learning how to to do freaking trapeze and you can go there for a day you don't have to be like trained at all obviously i was not a circus girl <laughs> in my youth um, but and it's just like one of the most incredible things you can do um yeah and, and i just love it like you're just literally like next to sky skyscrapers but you're flying you're the one who's like flying high and touching the sky so i would suggest that yeah. um and then all the restaurants you can eat just like that's tourists and locals just go for it eat your way through the city <laughs> yeah that's definitely what i've been doing since i've been there is just eating gaining weight uh so it's been a lot of fun but i'll definitely have to go check out trapeze school that's, yeah. that sounds crazy <laughs> please don't get injured i don't want you to <laughs> <laughs> i'll try not to so one thing that's really prevalent in new york city is theater and and you know that you know whole aspect of the city um and you yourself started a theater company. Was it in high school? Is that correct? Yeah, in high school. Yeah, called Eat at the Table Theater Company. So, mm -hmm. what was the goal in creating that? Um, and what were you? I mean, what were you ultimately trying to do? Yeah. Um, so, uh, my friend Kai, my incredible friend and also co-director of Eat at the Table Theater Company. We grew up in New York City and we would go to anything from Shakespeare in the Park, which is a, a free theater showcase in the summer, um, to the like the Broadway musicals, to um, BAM, which is the Brooklyn Arts Museum. I mean, sorry, Brooklyn, well, whatever, you can look at the acronym, but another theater company down in Brooklyn. Um, and we just loved going to these shows, but I think as we were growing up, we, we also realized as two black girls um, that it was really hard to see ourselves mirrored up on stage. Um, and we went to this, this one show, which was our favorite musical, um, which is about, it's about Into the Woods. It's about princesses and, you know, fairy tales and, and giants and everything. And so you have all these mythical creatures, but it was too too magical to think of casting a single person of color in that production, in that particular production. Um, I think that was really frustrating to us, especially when, you know, we were little girls who maybe could have gone into the theater industry as actors or actresses, um, but never really felt that, that pull probably because we weren't able to see ourselves. Um, and so we we're just like, you know what? We're, we're smart. We're, we're young entrepreneurs. We're, we are definitely bossy, and which I think is a compliment um, for women. And I, I was like, let's, let's do something about it. So we were blessed with a really amazing mentor um, who's in law. And so she helped us open up a fiscally sponsored uh, 
a theater company, basically, which means that we could accept donations and put on productions. And um, it's been running since 2015. Right now it's in this really exciting moment because we are actually transferring it into a multimedia production company now. Um, and that's because both Kai and I have been um, really excited by visual media in these past couple of years and movies and what is, um, what is like the democracy of film look like basically. So like it's, it, it's still inaccessible to go to the theater. It's something that has a really high price point um, and is really inaccessible to families, but you know, shows like, like, that you can get on Netflix or HBO, like those are, those are accessible to so many different types of people and different audiences. And that's really appealing to both Kai and I. Um, so we decided, yeah, this year to um, mark the fifth year anniversary of our, of our theater company of Eat um, to transfer to a multimedia production company. So we're now really excited to get more into the like fundraising um and, and mentoring role, basically, where we're allowed to give, like, seed grants to um, young artists, and specifically young artists of color, because that is our mission. We are a theater company that is specifically tailored to support young actors and creators of color um, who are doing badass things and just need to have space and support. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's EAT. I love it. It's my baby. Um, it's given me a lot of amazing friends and then also a lot of access to New York City in a way that is more professional, but also, um, like, grungy and just, like, you know, the, like, you've got to make it, otherwise you're going to go bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I didn't realize you were still involved with it, you know, so. Yeah, it's, we're, it's definitely in the transition phase because Kai and I are both just graduated and so we are used to using it, like, to running it on a summer schedule, um. And so we stayed quiet this summer because we're, we're internally trying to figure out how to like balance it as one of us is going international, that's me going to London. And then Kai is doing a whole full-time job, you know, and like work is a thing now. Um, so we're, we're definitely going to try to like take care of ourselves and protect those work-life boundaries that, you know, black women always need to really emphasize. But I think we, it's big enough and an amazing enough project that we want to let it like reincarnate into a second phase of existence this time yeah so i mean if you ever need a uh, budding star in the future i'll be launching my acting career after college so please <laughs> give me a spot <laughs> as long as you promise to walk across the stage quicker than the new york city students. oh my god i'll work on my speed hopefully in two years i'll, I'll get it down <laughs> anyways Let's go into uh, your college career. You wore many hats at Swarthmore College. I'm actually about to read off of a list because it's, it's, it's way too many things. And, and I, can't, I can't store it all off the dome. So at Swarthmore, you were a volleyball player uh, who excelled on the court. That's what you call it, right? The volleyball court. Excelled on the court. Lead singer of a band, Funk the Patriarchy and co-head of Swarthmore Doulas, which we'll get into later, um, on top of being an honors medical anthropology student and, and concentrating, I think it was what, black studies or African-American studies. Mm -hmm. um, so you did all these things and you look at them and they're all pretty different. So how did you get involved with these? Um, and if you could just give us a highlight from each one just so we have an understanding of, of what your time was like. Yeah, um, so 
I have always loved being a well-rounded girl. Like I think that for better or for worse, I can't, sometimes I can't be like, oh, I'm only going to do this. <laughs> I don't have tunnel vision. Um, but it has led me to like an incredible, incredible college experience that I would not trade away for anything in the world. Um, because SWAT as like a liberal arts, Swarthmore as a liberal arts college was really able to allow me to like balance all of those seemingly like contrasting parts of my life and then at the end of it I realized that they actually weren't that different from one another um and I think that that's why I was able to um be blessed with like the Marshall Scholarship because I was able to like have this vision of oh all of these are intertwined and all of them actually really do um connect to like radical community and what does it mean to support one another and to support oneself in like the whole entirety of yourself um, without like sacrificing. Um, anyway, I can talk about that later. But for me, a lot of it was about balance and like time, you know, like fall was volleyball because it's simply just not possible to like really do a, a varsity sport and then also try to balance all of those other things. So like it would be fall was volleyball and then spring was more of my like performing arts and theater and um you know, band time and everything. And I think it was also about like really recognizing that like a lot of the stuff I did, like I could be a leader of that, but then I didn't need to be the singular like leader of SWAT doulas. Like I was always like, okay, let's do co-presidents or I decided not to, like I didn't want to be a captain on my volleyball team because I was like, there's things, there's, I'm already a leader on this team. Like I don't need to be the title leader and then also like have all of the responsibilities and like time commitments that are associated with that. Um, and so, yeah, like recognizing my own limits and like also prioritizing sleep. That was a huge thing too. <laughs> like sometimes I'd be like, you know what, this meeting's just not going to happen. I'm going to go sleep. <laughs> um, and I am very proud to say that I graduated from slot without ever having pulled an all nighter. So that is, that is my pat on the back. <laughs> huge pat on the back. Um, I'd say a highlight from each of those for volleyball is two part. One is we went to elite eight, um, in 2016. And so that was just an incredible experience being able to like win our regional championship for the first time. We were like the first program to ever do that from our, um, division, sorry, from our, um, conference. And then you just like, get the superstar treatment like you just walk into the stadium all the lights are on you you get like pop, like bags of popcorn through the midwest so it was like caramel and oh cheddar gosh. popcorn i just remember that forever um and it was just incredible it was really incredible um i think that also i really loved that that happened and then like the next season but the next season was when i personally was named um all-american and so like that was like, that was really incredible to see that it wasn't just, like, oh, we get to Elite Eight and then we're done. Like, that's where we're peaking, you know? Like, I always felt there was still growth in my volleyball career, and that's something I'm really proud of. And, of course, just, like, my teammates. Like, my teammates are badasses. Like, they're so cool, and I love them. Um, and they push me, like, no other. Literally, have had so many challenges with my teammates, but I love them to death and would riot or die for them. Um, and... Hmm. For SWAT doulas, I think, so SWAT doulas is an organization that's about, um, I guess I should start by defining doulas, if that's okay. Yes, please. Yeah. 
Um, so doulas are essentially companions for pregnant people, and we support pregnant people from the moment that they decide that they're going to continue their pregnancy. Also, there are doulas who support um, women who are seeking an abortion or adoption services. But anyway, we just provide support um, all the way through postpartum, so all the way until the baby arrives and baby is situated and healthy and happy and family's healthy and happy, basically. Um, and the support we provide is through physical support. So like we're trained in massage therapy and touch work and how to breathe and help mama breathe so she gets oxygen in her body, which helps relieve pain and stress. Um, but we're also really trained in education. So we know the difference between hospital births and um, births at birthing centers and home births and water births and all of those options. And so we're really there to just like say to our client, you have options, right? Like you have agency and choice in this incredibly overwhelming nine month period. Um, and we are here for you. Um, and we want to, to be your ally. Like we want to make space for you as a pregnant person. Um, and I think that that's like an incredible gift and um, a responsibility. So I think that one of the highlights for that part of my life in Swarthmore was bringing um, a racially conscious, so really a, 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 a doula training that was supported, that's about supporting marginalized clients to Swarthmore. So um, a lot of times doula work is like really white and middle-class centric. Um, but we decided as leadership of the SWAT doulas, um, that like, we really wanted to support the moms who were in the Philly up area, which are a lot of times working class black women. And so there's an incredible organization down in Brooklyn called ancient song doula services. Um, that's run by a woman named Chanel, who's incredible, like just like an incredible life force. Um, and so we brought her to Swarthmore and she trained, um, 18 doulas her first year, to literally be able to like support marginalized clients and do the doula work that we all know is important and in a way that is more um, justice and reproductive justice oriented. And that's a really important part of my life. So that was definitely the highlight of that. Um, for Funk the Patriarchy, the band, oh, I just, there's literally no highlights. It's just, it was just the stress relieving, like of experience of my week you know like I would just go there and just like sing everything out of me so it was really important for me to have that just to like you know be able to like get some emotions like either in or out of me you know um and I think that also really continued this like balance of okay Emma is a person who needs to be serious in the classroom but like can have fun and be like this performance wild child outside you know and like there's space enough for both of those people um and I love the, like I am just such a performer so like I loved the process of getting ready for a show and um doing that with my co-singer Natalie Verchan um who is just like an incredible fashion person as well and we just like always coordinate our outfits I love that um and just like the connection I sent me through that band and with academics it was just like it was just like the cherry on top, you know, like I love medical anthropology so much. It's such a skill set that it's taught me about like how to listen to people's stories. Like I'm a talker, obviously. obviously. <laughs> and I think that it, anthropology though is really training you how to like be a fly on the wall and just to listen and to like pause in the silence and be able to say, okay, like what are the patterns that I'm seeing and like how, how did this community come to be? Um, 
And I think that's a really incredible skill set that I'm taking with me to this next phase of my life. It's incredible. If I can add two more things. So you started another thing called RevFest at Swarthmore. And this year... <laughs> I'm such a stalker. How do you know <laughs> I do. I do research. You started RevFest and you also brought... Um, star safety of the Philadelphia Eagles at the time. Now he's on my New Orleans Saints, Malcolm Jenkins. You brought him to talk about, um, you know, what's been happening in the black community and some of um, the equal justice initiatives. Um, So can you just talk about those two things and and how you were able to bring those to life? Of course, I'd love to. Um, So RevFest is really, what I really liked about RevFest is that it was essentially a festival that was modeled after Eat at the Tables Theater's Company's mission. Um, so I started that my sophomore spring, um, and we were just like, we need a showcase that is that is POC-centric, basically, because as you know, as someone at an also like, predominantly white institution, um, these like elite educational spaces are hard to navigate sometimes, and sometimes you just need like a moment of joy and like, being like, wow, we're so talented. Wow, like, I am such a baddie. Like, wow, all of those those moments. And I I think that that's, like, something I'm actually really going to harp on. Like, for whoever's listening to this podcast, like, I think we really need to create space of radical, spaces of radical joy. Um, And I think both of those events, both RevFest and um, Beyond the Field, which is the collaboration with, with Malcolm Jenkins, were moments where I was saying, okay, there's, like, oppression's not going anywhere. You know, racism isn't going anywhere. This predominantly white institution isn't changing anytime soon. Um, But how can we, you know, Kaepernick is still unemployed. Like, Trump is still tweeting racist shit at black athletes, right? But how can we also celebrate, like, the strengths, um, the resilience, the, in the power, and the change that, that black people... Um, and marginalized folks are responsible for in these spaces, in these performance spaces, in these athletic spaces, in these community spaces. And also not, not even like beyond that, but how can we just take a moment to, as people who are like constantly receiving um, uh, the stress of racism and the stress of, of, our, of our lived experiences and the pain and violence that comes with those, how can we just be focused on our our moments of joy and laughter and beauty that comes with ourselves and with our friends and our families, you know? Um, And so RevFest was really an emphasis of that. Um, And I think that's like the motto that I'm really trying to just like live my life with. Um, And also really came into the Beyond the Field event as well, because that was um, a, a project that really came out of my four year experience of being one of four black varsity women athletes in all of Swarthmore. There was four. I was one of four of them. And that was a really isolating and lonely experience sometimes. Um, And I was so lucky because two of the other black women were on my team, you know, like, like, so you can imagine how lonely that is for like, now we're graduated where, what happens next, you know? Um, And so Belle and Leilosa, who are the other two black women on my team and also just really incredible best friends for me, um, they, they and I were, were realizing um, 
that we needed to like do an, an event that kind of commemorated this this growth that we'd had over the last past four years um, that really started with Leigh and I taking a knee after Trump uh, tweeted against Kaepernick in 2016, 17, yeah, 2017. Um, and so we decided to take a knee also at our D3, like tiny liberal arts college. Um, but that was the same year that we went to Elite Eight. So like, it was a big deal. Like we were on a national platform. Um, and I think that it started with taking a knee, but then it expanded into um, starting a diversity and inclusion internship position, starting um, a coalition called ADI, Athletics for Diversity and Inclusion, um, which is uh, essentially like a, a committee that has two athletes from every team now at Swarthmore that are just coming together bi-weekly to talk and create events like the Malcolm Jenkins events that cater towards identity and diversity um, and, and creating enough space for both because there's a lot of isolation and a lot of judgment around varsity sports um, and and race and merging those two conversations together that is not necessary and that can be a source of power and and strength and like coming together that leads to better sports and performance. Um, so we invited Malcolm Jenkins to kind of as the epitome of that also, because his work um, like with organizing against mass incarceration through his organization, Players Coalition, um, I think can't be removed from his success with the Eagles. Like he, that, those organizations came out of their, their Super Bowl win, you know, in many ways. And I think that just like my, Six, my success with um, going to Elite Eight with my team came the same year that we knelt. Like, I, I think there's something that needs to be explored in these athletic spaces about saying when you have these difficult conversations that actually are painful and really hard, but bring people together on the team in a way, in a way that you haven't been brought together and confronted each other before, you become a better team, you perform better, and you have a better impact on your community. And I don't think that those are random or like misaligned, but they actually are like quite um, like they occur in, in very strong patterns um, and it's the right thing to do. But it also is the competitive thing to do, too, as well. Um, and Malcolm Jenkins was just such an amazing, amazing presence. He was like such a, you know, he's, he's such a superstar. He just when he walked in, like he just was willing to talk and like hear about the projects that I was doing and like ask how it could help us help help me out like he gave me his personal email like that's insane you know so I love him he's also so like stylish and cool <laughs> so I was like wow I wish he was my dad like I so <laughs> um and he has a beautiful family and he's doing really amazing work that again is like starts with his team starts with his own individual athletic performance but then really extends to like him being a producer on these upcoming movies that are coming out about black boyhood and black masculinity in, in the united states and doing work with players coalition and trying to get people out of this which is huge and one of the biggest crises that our country is facing right now so yeah and you know these are all things that you've been ahead of the curve for um especially now in, in recent news this this summer, you know, I think my college, Columbia, or my university, Columbia, and, and a lot of other universities around the uh, nation have, you know, had kind of like an uprising of athletes, you know, fighting for, um, fighting to create change within these injustices. Um, and it, it just seems like you were ahead of the curve with that, with creating these opportunities at your school 
Um, so, you know, if you, if you want a job at Columbia in Columbia athletics, I can talk <laughs> to some people, we can see what, what happens, but you know, we love these programs in our program. Um, but no, it, in all honesty, I mean, it, it's really cool what you've been able to do at Swarthmore, um, within athletics, like you said, being one of four black athletes, I can't even imagine, um, what that's like. I, I went to a predominantly white high school and a predominantly white, um, college. And, uh, I've still had, you know, more than four, you know, brothers on, on the team to say the least. So I can't imagine what that was like, but at the end of the day, what you've been able to do is, is super special and, um, definitely imagine that it would have created lasting change on your campus. But with that said, um, I think the segues really well into what the main theme of today is, and, and that's reproductive justice, uh, which you touched on a little bit, and you touched on, you know, being a doula and what that is and what it means. Um, so could you talk to us today about reproductive justice, what it's about, uh, what you've been doing with that, and, and, you know, kind of the history of it? Yeah, um, I could talk all day, all year, <laughs> anytime about reproductive justice. Um, it is the, I think it's the lifeblood of this country that we don't, that we don't acknowledge. Um, but it's it's huge, and it's something that we need to all dive into, particularly in this moment in the wake of George Floyd um, and Breonna Taylor. Like this is this is something we need to confront. Um, how widespread its legacy is. So I'll start with saying that reproductive justice is a movement that really stemmed in, that really came to be um, in 1994 um, when a group of black women at an international conference in in Egypt um, came together and said, you know, after we're we're in this moment of, of white mainstream feminism, and where women are asking for access to abortion, asking for um, access to, to reproductive health services, right? But they are catered and focused mostly on the needs of white middle-class women. And that is not the reality of the world. That's not the reality of America. Um, and so these incredible black women um, recognized and have been recognizing this for years, you know, like they're just the ones who coined the term, but this work has been going on literally since the formation of this country, um, that black women and women of color and poor women and indigenous women have particular needs um, and reproductive health needs that look different from white women because of their different racialized experiences in this country. Um, but, But that needs to be centralized. And I think that that comes um, from a place of acknowledging the incredible violence that has um, accompanied, I'm going to speak particularly on the Black women experience and the Black health experience, because that's where my research is really focused. And um, that is the clients that I've been working on with and um, for the past couple of years. So if you look at the health and the history of Black women in America, you cannot separate that from the history of slavery um, in the United States. And so the reality of that is that when black women were taken to the United States, uh, their bodies, their worth on the marketplace was inherently tied to their reproductive value. If they were women who um, were in their childbearing years, they would be sold for higher prices than women who were infertile or women who who had already experienced menopause. 
And that's because black women have, were literally raped and forced to um, breed, to make more black babies who would then be taken away from their control. Um, they were not considered mothers to these children necessarily. They were considered caretakers of property of their masters, right? Um, and that's not even to really acknowledge the full depth of the violence that also happened where white slave masters um, have, have incredible legacies of um, raping and sexually assaulting their own um, enslaved women. This also can be found literally in the example of Thomas Jefferson, who is the, the father of, of, I say this in quotes, um, of liberty and, and justice, but he was raping his enslaved um, mistress, Sally, um, and had a a, a, a second family, a second black family, um, and yet he—that's not necessarily acknowledged to the to the extent, to the needed extent, in this story we tell about American liberty and justice, right? Um, and so then, what that looks like is that as slavery continues um, and then is ultimately abolished. In emancipation, suddenly black women and their reproductive value go from something that's heralded and something that we want, and I say we meaning like mainstream white America, to something now that is the 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 goal of getting rid of. And so suddenly you see um, extermination, sterilization um, campaigns. You know, you have you have young fourteen year old sisters in Mississippi um, who are sterilized at age at 12 and 14 um, because they're, they are deemed by the state unfit mothers. They have not necessarily even gone through their full puberty and yet they have already been designed and deemed as um, undesirable mothers. They don't want these young girls reproducing. Um, and then that happens also to a whole horde of, of, of also, like the history of reproductive medicine is also the history of, of racism, right? So birth control, um, something that, that millions of women rely on, is also something that was developed and practiced and tested on Puerto Rican women um, to the extent that many Puerto Rican women faced um, infertility. They were left infertile. Um, this happens in, in, again, going back to the legacy of slavery, where Dr. Marion Sims, who's considered the, the father of modern gynecology, um, he's given that title based on his, um, his experiments and trials um, of a very painful procedure that essentially involved, not to get too much into details, but I think it is important to, um, to describe the pain and the violence that comes with this, where he was essentially um, cutting through the fistula, so cutting through um, the uterary muscles and um, causing incontinence in in, in enslaved black women, um, this group of four enslaved black women, um, where he did this procedure hundreds of times over on them, over and over and over again, without anesthesia and certainly without consent. And he is then given um, the title of father of gynecology. He is given a statue in Central Park. He is given um, odes and, and, and praise in textbooks. But who's forgotten? The women who are actually, the black women who are the bodies that provided the basis of this medicine, right? Um, and then we see that in this afterlife of slavery culminate into the reality, the modern day reality that today black women 
are 400% more likely to die in childbirth and pregnancy-related causes than white women. That does not matter if you are a wealthy black woman. It does not matter or change if you are a young, healthy, college-educated um, black woman. If I become pregnant today, my chance of dying is four, I think it's something like 12 times, four to 12 times more likely um, than a white woman who is only has a high school degree. So like my, this level of education does not mitigate the risk. These, these levels of social protections that we put so much value in, um, like education, like class, like family support networks, they essentially disappear when black women are pregnant. And the reason, the reasons are, are multiple, right? It's, it's that you have environmental factors happening um, and you also have racism happening in medical spaces. So, so black women are notoriously not listened to. So if I go into a hospital and I say, I am experiencing pain, I am hurting. It, it's been shown that I have a less chance of being listened and acknowledged by my doctor. And that the doctor will say, no, honey, you're fine. You actually don't, you, you don't know what you're talking about in terms of your body. What is the price that this country is paying and that our communities are paying um, and, and the moral compass of this country is paying for not actually acknowledging the pain and the, um, the truth of one's words, specifically as it relates to the body, as it relates to life? These have real-time consequences. The consequences are that, that, that Black women are dying. They're leaving their families and they're leaving their children fractured. Like that is, that is something that, that is inherently tied then to the, the wealth gaps that we see between black families and white families in America. You have a fractured family through the single parent household. It's harder to get income, right? And then we're also, we need to realize that, that reproductive justice and these conversations about reproductive injustice are also inherently tied to, um, to conversations about, about mass incarceration and the, the criminal just injustice, again, I put this in parentheses, the criminal justice system um, that is one of injustice that also severs families, that also has that also has families and parents separated from their children and unable to support and provide for them, but also the situation happening where um, until 2014, it was still legal to have a, a woman shackled if she was incarcerated while she was giving birth. As if, a, as if a pregnant woman would be in the midst of labor and say, yeah, I'm going through this contraction. I have a whole human being coming through my body and I'm actually going to run away. Like, that's just not possible, right? Um, but it shows how, how the system just, just does not invest care or time or value into the bodies of poor brown and black women in the United States. And that is what reproductive justice is trying to counter. Um, and that's what my work is trying to counter and navigate. Like, how do we, how do we stop this plague, plague of death? How do we stop the inherent proximity between blackness and death in this country? Um, and that is the question of reproductive justice. And I think that's why what you're doing so far as a doula um, is super important. Um, I mean, we've had this conversation before and, you know, myself as well as many other people in my position and, and Americans in general um, aren't aware of the situation. And so that's why it's important to have people like you that are well informed on it and, and willing to, you know, educate. But at the same time, we need to be doing the, you know, research on our own and, and, and really, you know, figuring these things out and, and listening to the women that are talking about it. Um, but no, like I said, as a doula, 
And, and as a black doula, it's really important because you guys are willing to give, you know, I wouldn't even say more care, but just the necessary care to black women that are going through reproduction, uh, as well as having black midwives. Um, and if you could just explain the difference between a doula and a midwife, if that's that's a great question. Um, I think that you're, I love how you put it. It's just the necessary, we're delivering the necessary care, you know, like hopefully one day doulas won't necessarily be needed, you know, specifically um, doulas who support marginalized clients. But in the meantime, we're not going anywhere. Um, and then just to define a doula versus a midwife. So a, a doula is, um, is not a trained medical professional, right? I can't do anything medical to my clients. It's illegal and it also would probably end terribly. So <laughs> um, I am not allowed to like do anything that involves inserting my fingers into the into the vaginal canal or anything like that. Um, whereas a midwife is 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 trained and specifically medically specialized um, specializes in the delivery and gynecological care for women. So midwives can also do your GYN checks, your, um, your like help you through menopause, help you through period, help you through sex and like STDs, anything like that. Um, but they also do have like the beautiful reputation of being women who are trained or professionals who are trained to also, um, help with, with birth. And I love, I prefer like personally chose to be in the care of midwives because of my work in and research in how um, devastating like hospitals can be for black women. And I was like, you know what, this is also something that has personal implications on me. So um, I like decided to be treated by midwives, even though I'm not pregnant, you know, like I'm just a young person. Um, but because like that was my personal choice and I loved my, my midwife so much and they're incredible. Would recommend if you're listening again to this podcast, if you're a young, um, a young woman who maybe hasn't had the best relationship with your OBGYN, always remember that one, you can switch your provider and then two, and you have the right and you should be switching your provider until you have someone who loves and cares for you and who you feel like trusted and safe by or with. Um, and then also two midwives are part of that package that you can explore and midwives, um, just how generally like, have a lot of care and respect for the women's body. Um, and I think that that is something that I've felt personally as a client of midwives. And so we've talked a lot about your research and, uh, first congratulations for, you know, what I'm about to say next, but you you were awarded the Marshall scholarship and you were named a Marshall scholar. And that's, you know, for listeners who, who don't know, it's a really big deal. Um, I think it's somewhere around 4% of, of, you know, students get awarded this scholarship. It's a postgraduate scholarship that, you know, allows for these students to continue their research um, at a grad level institution. Um, so can you just talk about, you know, what it was like getting the scholarship and, and what it is? Yeah, so it's so wild. I smile every time someone calls me a Marshall Scholar because it's still very surreal. Um, so the Marshall Scholarship is a, a two- to three-year fellowship scholarship that's funded through the British government. Um, it came out of World War II kind of as a thank you to the United States' help in the war. Um, and so it's an incredible opportunity that, that takes me across 
across the pond, you know, across the pond to um, the UK where I'm able to choose any, to study any, at any university, basically any UK affiliated university. Um, so I'm one of 40, I think, scholars this year, I'm not sure, um, who I've met virtually, of course, through Zoom, and they're so smart and incredible. Um, so basically, we've all been identified as like young ambassadors and like future change makers of the world um so we're we're all going to be affiliated so we come together for like for instance thanksgiving and um for like events and everything but we are at different universities so a bunch of them are at cambridge a bunch of them at oxford and then um uh, many of us are also at london including myself so i'm going to be for this first year studying film and documentary um at goldsmith's university of london and the reason I'm doing that is because through my research with um, with with Black women and Black women's health, um, I was realizing how important a part of my project was visual. And so I did a lot of, Joshua knows this, like you and I drove around Texas, literally just like filming the city because I was like, this is, this city is something that needs to be captured and conveyed um, through my 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 thesis because if you don't understand if you can't see the people who I'm talking about like the impact of this project is not as great as it could be um and so I was like thinking about that and then realized oh wait like we need to start thinking and asking how can we use visual media um to navigate health worlds better right so right now we're in a freaking pandemic right and it's really hard sometimes um to get people as we know, we clearly are seeing through the insane and irresponsible response that our country has had to this pandemic, um, how important delivering real and scientific information about health is to the people, right? And so one of the questions that I'm asking is, okay, like, in, in this public health crisis, how could we have done this better? Like, how could we have gotten information to the people quicker and better format um and i think that sometimes it's hard to ask people to read like dr fauci's report like 100 page report on on the coronavirus but what would it look like if we had um i don't know like tiktoks youtube vlogs like um netflix shows that are that are seriously like grappling and in real time responding to these health conversations and questions that we have um and just you know in a way like parallel and echo um the, the needs that we have as like people living in a public health crisis. Um, and so that's the question that I have. I think it's going to be an interesting one. I'm like a little nervous because it's the first time that like I'm going into a field in a while where I'm like, I'm not the expert, you know, like I don't know how to do video editing, but they liked, I, I put together, I submitted like my visual project for a portfolio. And I think I need to trust myself a little bit more that I, I I do have experience in these fields. I just wasn't the one who went to film school. Um, and clearly they saw, like they, I'm, I'm, I'm going to toot my own point a little bit um, right here and say like, you know, Goldsmith's um, film program is a really competitive one and a really strong one. And so they only accept 15 master students every year for this program and they accepted me. So like there's something that, that's there about this idea of tying together health and visual media that, that has worth and merit and size we should trust in that and see how it goes, you know? And I guess the question is like, do I want to become the next, like, I don't know, like Ava DuVernay or like Issa Rae, you know, versus like 
the 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 next like leader of Planned Parenthood who's like hosting a film festival. And I think both of those are like really exciting, equally exciting opportunities um, and futures for me to work towards. I just don't know which one it is right now. <laughs> but that's the point of the Marshall. Like yeah. I'll, I'll just learn <laughs> um, yeah. through experience. Either avenue you go, we'll be well. We I will be following you along and, and checking up on your progress. But I mean, we're, I'm super excited for, you know, what the future holds for you. And uh, the fact that you're going to London is super cool. Um, but I think that's going to do it for us today. I want to let you have the last word. So if there's anything you want to shout out or plug, uh, please feel free. Um, I would say in these moments of incredible, like, anxiety and stress, I just want to give a shout out to people who are prioritizing their own joy and creating spaces of happiness. If that's um, anything from, you know, eating a meal without your cell phone or the television on, just like in silence with your own self, or as our friend Joshua has done, um, by making a hilarious music video about the ridiculousness of the summer. Um, that is what radical joy is, and those acts are powerful ones that, that will guide you through this moment of darkness. Um, and yeah, always I always say like go outside, keep your face in the sun for at least 10 minutes a day. That's, that's my rule. And follow me on Instagram at emmazinha. Um, that's E-M-M-A-Z-I-N-H-A. I'm going to be having some really exciting visual projects and a website coming out soon. So if you want to stay updated on these conversations and themes, um, yeah, give me a follow and there'll be content to, to come come out of it. So sending love to all of you guys. Joshua, love you. You're amazing. Um, thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for being on the show today and, and you know, just speaking some wisdom. Um, that's what this is all about. But that's going to do it for this episode on the Boredom Project podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and making it all the way to the end. Um, we have some more projects coming out for the next couple weeks before school starts on the 8th for me. Um, but once again, thank you guys so much for listening. That's going to do it. I'm out. This, this is a Lock production. production. production.